0: Saturday, September 5th. Saturday morning shifts at Shady Pines threatened Percy's sanity. Before her criminal act, her weekends were a completely different species than her school days. School days were quivering caged foxes raised to be hunted by hounds. Weekends were wild, luxurious beasts that bathed in the sun and ambled idly after sweet scents. But every day at the Pines had the same rhythm. Every day was a malnourished circus bear hibernating through a perpetual winter. Percy coached herself on her way through the Shady Pines parking lot. Oh, only four more Saturdays to go. That morning... The shock of sameness put her into Twilight Zone gear. She imagined this episode, the one she starred in, would end with the discovery that everyone in Shady Pines was already dead, their pulses sustained by the swinging of a mystical metronome hidden in the basement. She'd crumple to the ground and as she was slowly surrounded by a halo of spilled coffee, realized those wrinkled zombies had drained her youthful zeal bit by bit until it was too late. Roger played the role of Denise on weekends. Though Roger's hefty belly, frazzled beard, and hardy eyebrows gave off an imposing impression, Percy had seen him gently catch and release four spiders and seven stink bugs since her sentence had begun. His shtick was to refer to the hungry residents as a different herd of animals every week.
1: Have they assembled in attack position?
0: Roger asked, after she closed the dining room door behind her. Yes, indeed. There was still a half hour to go before breakfast, but residents had caught the scent and were stalking the door. I saw a few piranhas out there, which is why I'm not wearing anything shiny.
1: You're funny, Percy. You'd be surprised at how many people are unconcerned with the preservation of humor. It's disappearing like cursive and phys ed. So you want
0: coffee duty or condiment prep? Percy shrugged. Coffee, I guess. I don't really care. Copy that. After she brewed enough coffee to drown a horse, Percy helped Roger load the buffet bar with piles of bacon, hard-boiled eggs, toast, and fruit that the weekend chef had churned out much earlier. At 7.30 on the nose, hungry residents staggered in like starfish, and Percy began the never-ending filling and refilling of coffee cups and teapots. Since breakfast on the weekends was seat-yourself buffet-style, the residents fetched their own food. Many were self-ambulatory, but the majority relied on the assistance of walkers or canes. This is where Roger really shone. The only thing that could elevate his heroic act of fetching food for those who lacked mobility would be a leotard, cape, and codpiece. Without Super Raj, the dining room would be clogged with slow-moving plate balancers who would jack up Percy's rhythm. Some residents, like Mabel, resisted, clinging fiercely to their independence, but not to their plates. Mabel stood at the buffet, wavering like an undergrad at a bar on his 21st birthday. As she picked through the bacon to find the crispiest pieces, her plate wilted in her hand like a petal on a dying flower. Super Raj had another superpower. Despite being there only twice a week, Roger had memorized most of the residents' names and breakfast preferences. When Percy asked for his name trick, he smiled. It's really easy. I just hook a name to an object the person looks like. For instance, doesn't Doris
1: over there look like a door? And wouldn't Mabel make a lovely vase on a table?
0: So what furniture do I look like?
1: Oh, no, not furniture.
0: Observe that you don't carry a purse. Purse. Percy. Get it? Copy that. As bellies and bladders reached capacity, most diners filed out to enjoy a group activity or blaring television. But many lingered to chat or read the paper. At that point, Super Raj swapped his cape for his glasses, becoming Roger the bookkeeper, and retired to the back office. Percy actually enjoyed this part just a little bit. Standing front and center, she watched for the smallest of gestures like a mute auctioneer. At the merest flit of an eyeball, she approached with her coffee crafts. When a cup was tipped to check its levels, she was instantly there to top it off. Whilst deftly filling a decaf with one hand and full octane with the other, she heard softness behind her. Hello there. She turned to see Adam standing there. She smiled as red crept into her cheeks. What's your name? I'm Percy. Percy? Yeah, Percy. Percy Tennant. Tennant. Percy Tennant. He was clearly repeating her name to aid his memory, maybe even pondering whether she resembled a turkey or a corgi. But there seemed to be more to it than that. Something, in his clear, steady gaze, he was taking her in. He was saying her name as a first step towards knowing her, not just as a means to acquire Creamer for his coffee. Yes, that's me. It may have been the first time she'd cracked a real, actual smile with anyone other than Denise and Roger. She realized her teeth probably took on a weird shade under that fluorescent-lined ceiling and abruptly pulled her lips shut. Percy, I'm Adam. Adam Denville, it's very nice to make your acquaintance. Percy hugged the decaf under her arm and accepted his hand. A warm handshake and appropriate amount of silence made the moment feel significant. He continued, Might I bother you with a request? Oh, mm-hmm. That's what I'm here for, Percy said, taking the craft back in her hand and feeling the veil of ambivalence flutter around her once again. Do you know much about computers? Computers? Um, kinda.
1: Well, I'm having a devil of a time
0: managing my website. I wondered if you could help me. Wait, you have a website? Yes, I do. Oh, um, sorry. Well, I really just work in the dining room. Don't they have tech support or something? Adam leaned toward her and nearly whispered, The front desk advised me to turn my computer off and then back on again. I think I need someone a bit savvier, if you know what I mean. Someone with youth on her side? Percy smiled again. Yeah, I can try to help you once I'm through here at 9.45. I'd be very appreciative. I'll be in the library, but if you change your mind, that's okay. It is Saturday, after all. No problem. I can't promise much, but I can try. Do you need anything now? Me? Oh, no, Percy. I haven't a care in the world. Everything is perfectly fine. Okay, then I'll find you in the library. Wonderful. Percy dashed over to Elma, adroitly swapping the decaf for Creamer on her way. Elma was tickled.
1: Well, Percy, how did you know?
0: You're an open book, Elma. As Percy poured, she tried to resist the pull of a smile, but it wouldn't dissolve. It was there on her face like initials carved into a tree. A tingle in the bottom of her spinal cord circled to her belly, reminding her of the few dates she'd been on. But Adam was pushing 90, so that didn't explain it. She decided the sensation was more like a discovery of something, like finding an oasis in this dry and monotonous Sahara of seniors. Finally, something there seemed real. Percy found Adam hunched over his laptop at the library's long conference table. He was the only one in the room. The other socially inclined residents were likely attending the bridge tournament in the activity center. For a second, she felt like she and Adam were meeting in the student lounge, like she'd just gotten out of chemistry lab and he had a few minutes before he had to run to basketball practice. Percy. He said with genuine glee, Wonderful. Thank you for coming. Hi, Mr. Denville. Oh, no. I'm Adam. Call me Adam. Sorry, Adam, that I was so surprised you have a website. It seems even email is pretty rare here. I would definitely put money on my being the only one. I hate to assume, but that ancient terminal over there in the corner has at least a quarter inch of dust on it and would get more use if it were turned into a (laughs) fishbowl. Percy enjoyed the feeling of a chuckle forcing its way out of her, like a mountain stream cracking through ice. What a pleasure to hear a real laugh. Percy felt self-conscious and went quiet. My fellow residents are all very kind, but in an analgesic way that might be instructed in some kind of secret handbook that I have not yet received. Percy nodded and whispered, I think you have to get hazed first. (laughs) So tell me then, Percy, why are you here? Oh, well, I am not sure if I'm allowed to say. That's okay. I'll tell you why I'm here. Inevitability. He repeated the word, stretching each of its syllables as the tone of his voice rose and fell. Inevitability. It was as if he was introducing a magician to an applauding crowd. I'm going to die sooner than later and don't want to do that alone. You're recently alone? Mm, lost her four months ago. Oh, I'm sorry. So am I. So very sorry. But that's the risk you take when you love. Loss of that love. Well, the object of the love. The love is always there, isn't it? He reached behind his tie and tapped the center of his chest. It made a solid thump. After a pause, he added, I'm glad to be the one feeling the pain of loss while she's enjoying peace. I think it would have been much harder for her to have outlived me. Percy blurted. I'm here because I wasn't feeling alive enough, so I stole something. and Working here is my punishment. Ah, uh, so you're a firecracker. I guess so. Masquerading as an unskilled petty thief. But you say being here is a punishment. Well, no offense, but yeah. Well, I can see that it's a conceptual punishment, because it's how you're paying back for your indiscretion. But it doesn't literally have to be a misery... Percy kept her thought to herself. You're new here. Give it a couple weeks. Adam continued. Can't it be an opportunity, Percy, to observe people? See deeper into humanity? To go spelunking, you could say. (laughs) When an overzealous laugh burst out of Percy, Adam's eyes glistened and he watched her intently. His smile was one of adoring intrigue, as if he'd stumbled onto a mama fox playing with her cubs in the snow. What is it? He asked gently. After she shook her head, he insisted. Tell me. Really, I'm so sorry. It's it's inappropriate. It's just a joke my friend Kirby says all the time. You'll find out, though.
1: Oh? Oh. oh.
0: Adam's eyes lit up, and he looked around to confirm the library was still empty. For effect, he whispered, Spelunking. You're referring to my harem of willing spelunking partners. Percy's eyes widened and her face turned red as she nodded slightly. Adam continued and shook his head. They are not subtle. Very crude women. If only they'd had the pleasure of meeting the woman they are competing with. It sounds like your wife was lovely. Uh, Nothing less than a class act. Well, watch yourself, Adam. At least one of them probably has a bottle of Rufy's. Noted. Thank you. I will be careful. So shall I show you my website?" After an hour, they had resolved his technical difficulty. It would have taken ten minutes had Percy not been distracted by the site's subject. It was Adam's documentation of the dozens of treehouses throughout the world that he had researched, visited, and photographed. Why treehouses? Oh, because of the view. And I don't mean the vista. Humans are not meant to clamor about up in treetops, Percy. As altitude increases and gravity extends its reach, death becomes more likely. For those who don't descend immediately or close their eyes in fear, this instigates a sort of recalibration. From way up there, breath and certainty and reality are much less succinct. Everything one knows becomes fluid and overlaps, is overlaid. What had been
1: assumed gets reworked. Obstacles are seen as adventures.
0: He held her gaze and paused before he continued slowly. Things become different than they seem. He had conjured her memories of the time she'd spent in trees. She imagined standing up in one of his tree houses. The wind was slender silk ribbons contemplative as it meandered around her face and pulled through her hair. Distant treetops merged together as if an ocean, surging with ambition to rise. When Adam talked about tree houses, his eyes became clear and bright as the skies she remembered from her youth, and his face held the peace of the clouds. He looked content, yet willful, majestic in a way, like a good king that retains innocence despite wars fought and hard decisions made. Suddenly, there was a cacophony. The bridge tournament had ended and a slow, jolting flood of residents poured into the lobby. Some were headed toward the library. Adam held her gaze and said, I look forward to tea with you sometime, Percy. Would you drink some tea with me? Tea? When? Whenever you can. As you can see, my calendar is utterly spacious. He smiled softly and watched her watch her hands. I'm here again on Tuesday for the dinner shift, which is over at 6.30. 6.30 then. I'll find us a place that won't be overrun. Okay, um, don't break your computer again, okay? I will be careful, Percy, but confident that... Uh, Adam paused as he stood with some difficulty. If I do, you can help me bring it back to life. Percy was relieved when he stood up. She'd wanted to help, but worried it would offend him. That night, Percy met Kirby for dinner at the town's only Chinese restaurant. As the bells on the doorknob clattered, scaring away any evil spirits that may have followed her in there, she saw that he was already sitting at their usual booth. When he saw her, Kirby made a fake surprise smile, then blanked his expression, raised his menu, and slowly slid until his face was hidden behind it. Percy rated all of her other classmates somewhere between terrible and just okay, depending on the day. But Kirby stood out of that crowd like a globetrotter on the streets of Beijing. No one else was hilarious or edgy or brave like Kirby, and he'd say no one else was earnest or kind or curious like Percy. According to the natural laws of adolescent clique dynamics, the two never should have spoken, let alone become close friends. Kirby was a high-ranking cool guy in the athlete clique. His oversized letter jacket was snug, and his pants fit as if bespoke. His green eyes were framed by dense eyebrows and one of his collection of many hip eyeglasses. His thick brown hair swooped high at his hairline, fell back, and crashed behind him like a tidal wave that left most stunned and some catching their breath. And then there was Percy, decidedly unfit for any version of a cool high schooler. Neither athlete, socialite, nor skater. Despite very high grades, her social skills disqualified her from nerddom. And, while plenty angry and sad enough to be punk, goth, or emo, raging with her own inner voices was all she wanted. If Percy had to be categorized, she'd probably default to the hippie wicca clique. but that was only because she sat with them at lunch on days she couldn't eat in study hall. She shared their indignance about the many ills of society, but would never really fit in with them because she felt like talking about it over and over, and all the time, didn't help anyone. Percy didn't fit, but remarkably, the 24-7 judge and jury that was every single moment of high school never punished her for it. She wasn't an outcast and she'd never been bullied. Her effect on her classmates and teachers had always been either neutral or net positive. But that didn't mean she was accepted. She was managed. Everyone seemed to hold her at arm's length. It was as if they didn't know what she expected from them or what to expect from her. Everyone seemed to wish she were a droopy wallflower or an angry rebel or any other familiar archetype with a clear access point. If it hadn't been for her dad, Percy may have concluded she was invisible and leaned into alienation. Or, she may have picked a clique, adopted that persona, and turned up the volume to force a fit. And had that happened, the mean girls would have swarmed and feasted. But her dad had always seen her. And one day, while she sat in his study, legs draped over the arm of his oversized maroon leather chair, he suggested they name her. He'd suggested they brainstorm a name for her own exclusive clique. Percy was confused by the idea but soon intrigued and ultimately very excited when they decided on self-assured introvert. They played the acronym SAI, or PSI off the term PSYOPs. While PSYOPs, or psychological operations, involve conveying information to people in order to sway or influence them, Percy and her dad discussed her penchant for doing the exact opposite. As a PSY, Percy observed the forces that shaped people's opinions, motivations, and behaviors how her classmates navigated their own cliques, and why. The closer she watched, the clearer it became that there were ever deeper answers to the question, why? While her indoctrination as a psi made Percy feel validated and even a little bit proud, she was not a robot. She knew deep in her bones that the only thing humans really need is connection. She fully rejected Darwin's survival of the fittest theory. His assertion that human survival hinges on competition made zero sense to her. If that were true, life's day-to-day would be clear-cut. Global societal norms would be solidified and brazenly brutal. The concept of political correctness would only have been conceived as absurd satire to demonstrate weakness. TV shows like Star Trek and Buffy and Schitt's Creek would not exist, and all humans would be content with a steady diet of Kardashians and Dateline and instructional videos on YouTube. Every day, Percy witnessed at least one bit of proof that humans possess and are led by pure and basic benevolence. Sure, sometimes this evidence was mangled and distorted, having had to fight its way out from under miles of crusted-over fear and pain. But no matter how cantankerous and dickheaded a person seemed to be, Percy knew that deep, deep down, their truest self just wanted to smile and be nice. Percy could feel the dissonance that arose when the intellectual expectation that survival requires strength was met with the primal assurance that the most effective strength is the embodiment of kindness. Since kindness can't happen without connection, a self-assured introvert like Percy will most certainly feel lonely. And Percy did. She felt lonely a lot. Her loneliness was physical. It was a weight hanging from her heart that sometimes pulled her shoulders forward, as if to simulate a hug. Some days she could ignore it, but others it hurt more than usual. On the day her biology teacher announced preparations for the dissection of frogs, her heart turned to lead. The frogs would be frozen to provide the freshest, most realistic view of their anatomy. The frogs would be alive when
1: they cut into them. They won't feel a thing. Mr. Hobson stood at the front of the class and assured them, They won't feel a thing. In fact, when frogs need to survive the winter, they develop high concentrations of glucose in their vital organs and then submit to nature. They chill, chill through the winter, thaw out, and hop right along.
0: Kirby was up in the front of the class with Mr. Hobson, leaning in the corner. He was the lab assistant for the class and was waiting for his cue to describe the details of the dissection lab. At Hobson's pun about chilling through winter, Kirby's lips scrunched to one side and an eyebrow shot up above his glasses. But, Gina spoke up, our frogs won't be waking up. Gina was part of the hippie Wicca a click in Percy's lab partner.
1: <laughs> Let's hope not, but interestingly, this mechanism of a glucose buildup preventing damage from cold weather has given us insight. Some believe a similar genetic advantage could have developed in humans. Advantageous in cold weather climates, but when hijacked by modern lifestyle, donuts, coca-cola, and whatnot, the benefits turn into, well, diabetes. Not advantageous at all.
0: How can you know our frog victims won't feel us cutting into them?
1: Listen, I know dissection is uncomfortable for some people, controversial even, I get it. Even though our state doesn't have anti-vivisection laws, this school does, and you have the freedom to opt out for computer-based dissection. Certainly not as educational, and even worse, you'd miss out on working with Kirby over here.
0: Where are these frogs now? There's something I'd like to say to them before their eternal winter.
1: Okay, okay. Kirby, come on over and review the procedure for everyone. You guys, Kirby will dismiss you. See you all next time. Gina leaned over to Percy and whispered,
0: we are freeing those frogs, you and me, today. Kirby distributed the lab materials sat on Hobson's desk and blandly recited the required talking points. After he'd answered everyone's questions, some of which had to do with the roster for the upcoming championship game, he made eye contact with Gina. He stood up, pulled some keys out of his pocket, and walked into the small office slash storage room in the front corner of the classroom. Percy could hear metallic grindy key and lock sounds, after which Kirby left the office, pulled the door shut, and put the keys in his pocket. He caught Gina's eye again as he left. Shit. Gina was aggressively loading her books into her bag. Did you see that? Sneering at me while he locked it all up tight. No doubt that's where the frogs are, in that dank closet where Hobson huddles after school and does Gaia knows what while he thinks about his hot and sporty lab assistant. While the frogs have to listen? Those poor little fuckers. And how infuriating is it that Hobson uses Kirby's body as a pond to rope horny kids into murder? All in the name of education, but not even education. Dissection is an outdated, primitive rite of passage. I can't wait to get out of this institution of patriarchal antiquated nonsense. At least I know you're not dissecting. Right, Percy? You're not. Percy emphatically shook her head. No, no, there's no way. Gina stormed out and Percy finished sewing her books in her bag. She didn't know Kirby, but was certain Gina had misinterpreted his face. Hope pulsed out of her heart, made heavy by the fate of those frogs. She couldn't have been more curious about what Kirby had been doing. As the students left, the room got exponentially quieter. Percy could feel the volume shift, as if the sounds were a viscous fluid being poured out of the biology room into the hallway. The air between her desk and the door to the storage room felt lighter, too. She tried the knob, it turned, and the door opened. She stepped inside, closed the door, and dropped her bag. Passing three tall metal cabinets, she headed straight for the white chest freezer, scratched and covered in dents. Huh. Mercy was actually considering it. She was actually readying herself to participate in one of the most tired, overplayed high school tropes. But better that than stand by while another group of humans blithely suppress and deny their most basic instinct of benevolence. Uh, Oh. Flocked. The latch was loose and droopy enough for her to open the door a tiny bit. Cold air rushed out, but she couldn't see inside. The frogs had to be in there, fast asleep. And that meant Gina had to be right. Kirby had indeed been fortifying the frog's frosty sarcophagus. The heaviness returned to her heart as she bent to snag her bag, until she heard something that she could only describe as ribbity. She tried one of the metal cabinets. It was locked. The second was locked as well. Before she could try the third, she heard someone come into the classroom. Oh, piss. If Mr. Hobson found her in his office, she'd be toast. With only a couple seconds to spare, she dove under the desk and hugged the chair legs. The door to the office opened and bumped right into her backpack. She watched the legs and feet as they stepped inside, kicked her bag out of the way, and shut the door. At least there was no way the shoes and pants she saw belonged to Mr. Hobson. No judgment, but Hobson was a slob, and the person she was hiding from was clearly fashion-forward. The legs walked themselves toward the desk, bent into a crouch, and she saw Kirby's face. Hi, Kirby. Hey? Yeah, um, I'm Percy.
1: Yeah, you are not who I expected. Did you need something in here? Kinda. Okay.
0: Yeah, I just... Percy answered as she walked over to the third cabinet. She tried the handle. When it creaked open, she saw a large white tub. Through the cloudy white plastic, she could make out dark oblong figures scrambling over each other, hopping as well as they could in that small space. Are you here to check them in the freezer?
1: No, that's not till tomorrow morning. Are you here to reenact an episode of Saved by the Bell? I hate that show. So do I, but if any show had an episode about a high schooler freeing frogs, it has to be that one.
0: Right, but can we associate me with E.T. instead? Totally. Any possibility you won't turn me in?
1: Yeah, as long as you don't turn me in. Wait, why? Well, I just saw Gina in the parking lot. She seems smart, but I guess I can't read everybody. Sorry? I'm supposed to freeze them tomorrow morning, and I hope Gina would make it so they weren't here tomorrow morning for me to freeze, but She thought you were fortifying the
0: office against her when you were really- Making
1: it pretty obvious that I was leaving things unlocked, right? When someone closes a door and puts the key in their pocket without first putting it in a lock and turning it, was that not obvious?
0: So you were here to react, saved by the bell? No, E.T. Did you have a plan? Not really. I mean, to be honest,
1: I'd have already chickened out by now. You?
0: Have a plan or chicken out? Either or. No, to both.
1: Okay, so let's plan. I really don't want these little guys to die. They're gross and squirmy and probably have diseases, and I don't want to look at them or touch them or even carry that box and feel them jumping around in it. But they don't need to die just so Hobson can check a stupid box on his syllabus. I'm fine with wasting the occasional paper or water in the locker room because those showers take forever to get hot, and I use disposable contact lenses, but wasting living things? Hard pass. Early the next morning, Kirby
0: arrived on schedule to transfer the frogs from the cabinet to the freezer. His fingers quivered as he dialed Hobson's number. When Kirby told him the frogs were gone, Hobson lost it. The man was livid. He got to school with his shirt stained with toothpaste and his comb over in disarray. Kirby showed him that the office window was open. It was small, but dozens of kids could have fit through. Kirby showed him that the lock on the cabinet had been busted. And when they went outside, they saw that a garbage can had been moved under the window. Hobson led Kirby back into the school and first into the principal's office. Percy joined the group of kids huddled around the door. They could hear Hobson yelling his demands that Kirby be benched for the rest of the season. If it hadn't been for the frantic whispers of the other eavesdroppers, Percy would never have understood that there was only one game left in the season. The first round of the championship. If they won, the team would go on to play more rounds, but if Kirby didn't play, there was little to no chance they would win. Hobson knew this and let the principal choose, bench Kirby or he'd fail biology. Again informed by the crowd, either way, Kirby would lose out on college scholarships. And there Percy found herself playing out yet another high school television trope. At least there was no confusion about what to do. She'd seen this scenario play out on TV more than once and knew exactly how she wanted her version of it to end. An hour later, Percy's dad found her waiting in the principal's office, sitting on a chair next to the secretary's desk. He greeted the principal's secretary and shot Percy a theatrically stern look. She caught a millisecond of a smile in his eyes, which she guessed was triggered by the dirt she'd smeared on her cheek to dramatize her confession. The principal came out to greet him, and as she closed the door behind them, Percy heard Mr. Hobson begin to excitedly relay all the details. She tried not to smile, but it kept on happening. The day before, when she'd heard about the frog's imminent demise, she felt so sad, but never thought there was anything she could have done to fix it for her or for the frogs. But she did. She did fix it. But what made her smile is she knew it was unlikely she'd have taken action alone. And she believed Kirby when he said he'd have chickened out without a partner in crime. While awaiting her punishment, which was sure to be pretty severe, she felt happy. She felt giggly, actually, and her heart was light. She mulled over her certainty that people are fundamentally good and realized her perspective as a self-assured introvert was myopic. She'd missed something enormously important. Other people. Of course, it's scary to do the right thing all by yourself, it's risky and vulnerable, but if you have help, if you have solidarity, it can feel as if there's no other option. You can shift from well-intentioned to practically already did it in half a second. She was proud that she and Kirby helped those frogs, and that she could help Kirby. She was even okay with the fact that her and Kirby's encounter would play out like Breakfast Club. For a few days, maybe a week, he would say hi to her when they passed in the hallway. But only until the click-centric social dynamic reestablished dominance. They'd most certainly never have another conversation. But Percy was unfazed by this, because none of the decisions she'd made had to do with Kirby. She was more than content with the high she was getting from her very selfishly generous acts. Percy was pulled from her thoughts by a strange sound coming from the open doorway. She looked, and... an arm shoot out of the door frame, reach forward, and place something small on the floor. Kirby's smiling face appeared. He waved and then vanished. She recognized the sound. It was a plastic wind-up toy from those modified gumball machines outside of grocery stores. The ones that spit out a junky toy inside a plastic easter egg in exchange for a quarter. The toy was walking toward her. It was a little green frog taking tiny, resolute steps. When the secretary turned his back, she darted forward, scooped it up, and put it in her pocket. Finally, the principal's office door opened. Her dad emerged, turned to nod solemnly at the principal and Mr. Hobson. He shook their hands, saying, My sincerest apologies, Ms. Reynolds, Mr. Hobson. I appreciate your understanding and assure you nothing like this will ever happen again. I don't know what to say except that I take full responsibility. Let's go, kid. When they got into the car, he turned to Percy and grabbed her by the shoulders. His grin was larger than the one he wore when she learned how to ride a bike, or even when she told him she might want to be a psychiatrist when she grew up. My daughter. He exclaimed as if he'd just won her as his most coveted prize. I am so proud of you. You are your mother's child, Percy. Wait till she hears. Wait, I'm not in trouble? You are remarkable, my dear. So, wait. Oh, if anyone asks, you're in heaps of trouble.
1: You are grounded, young lady. But I would never punish you for what you did.
0: Oh. Oh. Okay. Well, what did the principal say?
1: Well, she's not as proud as I am and thinks she may have gone a little overboard,
0: but that's only because you're not her spawn. You're my hero, Percy. And now, we're all going out for a fancy hero's dinner. Fancy dinner meant the town's only Chinese restaurant. Once they'd slid into their usual booth, her dad winked at Percy as her mom cuddled against his arm. Percy opened her fortune cookie and read, yours is the truth that you own, and it is not for sale. There was wild speculation about the fallout of Frogshank Redemption as the spectacle came to be known. Percy was constantly fielding questions about her heroic act, how she did it, and why. But most of the questions were about her punishment. Specifically, why it was relatively minor compared to what Hobson had been after for Kirby. Hobson had gone at Kirby like a piranha, viciously biting into the flesh of his entire future. But when Percy confessed, Hobson was somehow content with a mere three days of detention. It didn't make sense. Some of the kids started a rumor that Percy'd found liquor in Hobson's office and used it to lessen her sentence. When Hobson resigned a couple weeks later, the gossip mill caught fire. Soon enough, to Percy's great relief, the flames subsided and things got back to normal. Normal except for one thing. Percy and Kirby had done much more than say hi in the hallway for a few days. They ate lunch together a couple times each week, visited each other's lockers, and of course, met at the ice cream parlor every week for hot fudge slander. Over the next two years, they'd eaten at that Chinese restaurant countless times. But that night, September 5th, they were there to celebrate Kirby's 19th birthday. You're really getting old, Kirby. And you can take it from me. I'm a certified expert in old people. You mean certifiable? Yeah, certifiable for sure. So, Ms. Old Person Expert, what have you learned from these old, um, fathomably aged... Retired, uh, tribe. Fathomably aged retired... Farts? Old farts? Did that one hurt, Kirby?
1: Yeah, I strayed myself.
0: So, you want to know my greatest lesson from my time with the old farts? Yeah. Well, I have to do more research before it can be a lesson. Right now, it's just confusing. Yeah? Yeah. So, these people are surrounded by ease, right? Chefs prepare their food, housekeepers clean their apartments, do their laundry... The on-site doctor investigates all their rashes and leaky orifices. Or wait, is that orify? No, orifices. Yeah, probably, orifices. But so, event planners keep them busy with card games and classic movies and outings to the grocery store. Everything's accommodated. Everyone acts happy. But I don't buy it. There's something off.
1: You mean your soul-succubus Twilight Zone scenario?
0: Percy paused and moved her food around with her fork. Being there, it's like cotton candy. All taste, no substance. What flavor? there's Originals, obviously. And I guess I mean nothing feels real or solid there. I think it's, well, every aspect of their lives is being taken care of except for one thing. Living. Nothing is hard there except the living part. Moving, breathing, thinking, speaking, maintaining a concept of the person you think you are. No one can do anything about that. And meanwhile, on the surface, everyone seems happy. Resigned? You'd think so, but no, it seems more like denial to me. So if this happy is on the surface, like in the hallways and dining room, I wonder what the mood is behind closed doors,
1: you know, when people are alone in their apartments.
0: Yeah, I don't think I want to know. It feels like there's no chance people aren't all the way past unhappy and standing face-to-face with depressed or terrified. I really hope that's not true. Well, if it is, the happy act is protective, right? Like medicine, even. Yeah, that's true. But I noticed the other day, and granted, I'm only in the dining room, I noticed I don't ever hear people chatting about their prior careers or see pictures of grandchildren getting passed around. People's personalities... Like, what makes them, them, you know? It all seems smoothed over. If all the bumps, good or bad, get smoothed over, what's left?
1: Sounds like the Borg.
0: Yeah, resistance is futile. Now this is a hell of a thing to be talking about on my birthday, by the way. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's good. I mean, because here's the chicken egg of it. This is what I want to know. Does the place give people their shady minds? Or do people move there once their minds have already become shady? Oh, I bet a little bit of both. A chicken omelette, maybe? <laughs> I know I whine and complain about that place, and I'm probably not being fair. Well, actually, I'm definitely not being fair. My dad has spent many a dinner explaining to me the ways I'm not being fair. And he's not wrong. It's okay to vent, Percy. You're not a monster. Eh, I'm a little bit of a monster. But still, I think it would be really cool if Shady Pines focused on who these people are. They're still those people. They're still the people they've always been. It's not cool to just let people fend for themselves. So you're saying they could do a lot beyond cooking, cleaning, and movies. Yeah. They actually fostered or even celebrated who everyone is as an individual. Like their hometowns, careers, favorite vacations, their kids, their pets. I don't know. It's... Sounds like I'm suggesting a detailed, extended, pre-death eulogy. Which is kind of morbid.
1: But not much different from what the rest of us are doing. Even if you discount social media.
0: You're a wise man, Kirby.
1: Well, I'm also a little dirty because before, when I asked for that big life lesson, what I really wanted to know is whether I should have hope for a longevity sex life. I should have known. (laughs) Like, when I'm an old fart, Will I still enjoy a periodic slap and tickle? (laughs) I don't
0: know, Kirby.
1: Will I still be taking Mr. One-Eye to the optometrist?
0: (laughs) Kirby. Seriously, have you seen any evidence? I'm
1: afraid of a future where I'm just pushing rope.
0: I would have no way of knowing that, Kirby. Well, actually. What? I thought this one woman had a very affectionate, well-tanned son who dined with her every Tuesday. But Kirby... Denise told me he's a gigolo. They have a standing appointment and Zeus knows what they do behind closed doors. I am simultaneously relieved and nauseated. Well the guy's pretty cute too. Three or seven too many gold chains, but cute. Want me to arrange a little birthday present?
1: Little? <laughs> no, it sounds like he's more into boom and grannies.
0: Who can resist you though?
1: No man on earth is able. So I can't steal away boom and granny's Playboy. She might be his retirement plan. You know, it's too bad you're not into booming grandpas. I bet some got
0: bank. You know, it's funny. Percy stopped before telling Kirby about her encounter with Adam. She wasn't quite sure what had happened, and Kirby would have made it weird. What's funny? Oh, just that whole idea. So you don't want me to get his beeper number? Can't say I'm not slightly tempted. It's been a long dry spell for this guy. You? With your Patrick Swayze and point-break hair and puss-in-boots eyes? I'm sure it's just temporary.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been purposefully sitting back and watching the scene. College is a whole new world, and I'm an anthropologist. But by next year, I'll have to hire a secretary to keep my dating life organized. Maybe I can borrow yours.
0: Oh, I don't know. It's all my secretary can do to keep up with all the men who are chasing me home and knocking down my door. Purse, we can't joke about this. If I am
1: not the first person you call when the Percy Pussy is no longer chased, my whole life will have been a lie.
0: Don't hold your breath for that call. I'm not in any hurry for that kind of action.
1: Yeah, don't rush it. I know those three drunken minutes at my friend's party really teased your bangs. What'd you call him? The smoocher? But you know, according to those documentaries about Molly Ringwald in high school, sex is not cool unless it involves love. Personally, I don't know
0: this from experience, but for you, I want the best. Kirby paused to watch the waitress as she scooped up their plates, then left their check and two fortune cookies. He grabbed a cookie and tore the thin cellophane wrapper. Then again, if you were to jump a bunch of bones before you meet the real bone, you'd be able to know for sure how much better the real one is. That's just science. Percy took her cookie and said, That makes me hot for Bill and I. He has more in your age group. Shut up. They paused to read their fortunes. Huh, looks like I'm right on track. What's it say? Find the good and ease into it. If you're quiet, it will come to you in In bed. They whispered simultaneously.
1: Bed's a good place for it to come to you, but there's no need to be quiet. Shut up again. You're obviously not thinking about it enough. You gotta prime the machine. Kirby
0: leaned towards her. Tell me. If you could pick how it happens, set the scene. Percy laughed while she snapped off a piece of fortune cookie between her teeth. Well, creep, I'd... Well, I'd say all the right things. I'd feel all the right feels. And he'd call me the next day. And? That's it, man. Purse, That's not hot. Whatever, you asked. I can't help that my porn is a Jane Austen novel. What's yours? Kirby immediately replied, Young Keanu Reeve. By the way, I know what you'll say, but old Keanu is also hot.
1: Yeah, we need to get you out of Shady Minds. How much longer?
0: 25 days, 10 shifts. Not that I'm keeping track. So does your fortune cookie shed light on when your fantasy will come true? Kirby winked and read through his grin. Your plentiful good fortune will gush like a geyser. In in bed. bed, they chimed together as the servers and hostess rolled their eyes. Makes Old New was written and produced by someone called Dora Henry. For more information and sound credits, visit lovemakesoldnew.wordpress.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave an iTunes rating. Thanks for listening.